Thank you, ladies, for that. Okay, Acts chapter 7. Could you go there in your Bibles tonight? Acts chapter 7. This is truly a privilege to be here with you tonight. A joy and an honor. First, be back at our home church. It's been quite some time. I think it was June was the last time we were home for a service. And so uh, there's a number of faces that I do not recognize, which is encouraging because that means that there's, there's uh, people being added to the church. And uh, even some college students have not recognized, and so I'm hoping to get to meet you here in the next couple of weeks. We are grateful to be home. I will tell you, my wife and I have come to greatly appreciate uh, this church. When we are away, you begin to realize how much your home church means to you. And for several weeks now, we have been longing and looking forward to coming back uh, to Wisconsin, not necessarily because it's Wisconsin or because it's the north, but because of our home church. I am cold. Anybody else cold? I, it is freezing cold out there. I, last weekend, I was in Fort Myers, Florida. It was 86 degrees last Sunday, and I thought, this is nice. This is of the Lord, I think, and so it's a little bit cold here. But anyways, I'm, we're grateful to be here with you. Uh, Emma is sick, and so she's uh, at the trailer, and the little kids are around. Gilbert's in the back, and, and Ginger's in the, in the nursery. Uh, if you're, you're in Acts chapter 9. This, this church has been going through for the last uh, several weeks and months a book called Experiencing God. I have not read that book. Uh, it was just recently given to me, and so I'm going to be taking some time to read that. But at the beginning of this year, I should, well, maybe I should say the beginning of this summer, the Lord began to do a work in my heart, teaching me some of the truths that are in that book, though I've never read that book. And it's been thrilling to see how God has led this church on a journey, has led me, who is a member of this church, but away from the church, the Lord has led me on the exact same journey in many ways, coming to an understanding that I believe is all through the Scripture, and yet an understanding of God that I have missed for a long time. See, we oftentimes look at God, we look at the scriptures, we read a passage of scripture, we say, hey, look, that's what God wants us to do. Or we look at a passage of scripture, we say, hey, look, that's what God does, and yet we miss the very essence of who we are, and we miss the very essence of who God is. At the beginning of the summer, I was challenged by the concept of, uh, of not just focusing on what God does, but focus on who God is. You say, why does that matter? Well, it seems subtle, but in fact, it's an it makes an incredible difference in your Christianity and understanding how to focus on the difference between looking at just what God does and who God is. Let me give you an illustration, try to help make this clear why this is so important. Back in the late 1800s, a man by the name of Oswald Chambers was born in Scotland. He would grow up in England. Most of you know that name, Oswald Chambers. His book is on the greatest, most read Christian devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers believed that the Lord would have him to be a part of a, um, uh, be, be an artist and, and be in the art world. And so he, his education was fashioned and tailored that way and that, that's what he pursued. Until age 27, when God began to deal with him significantly, and he, uh, Oswald Chambers went through a period of, of time, uh, his biographer calls it the dark night of the soul, where he wrestled with his concept of God and his surrender to Jesus. Finally, at age 27, Oswald came through that period and surrendered all, believing that God would have him to set aside his art uh, pursuits and, and instead be abandoned to God, as would be the theme of his life. And, and so for the next 16 years, Oswald gave himself for the purpose of knowing God, teaching about God, pursuing God, Oswald would die at age 43. I don't know if anybody knew that, but he died at 43 in Cairo, Egypt, which means he only had 16 years of effectiveness in Christian service. And yet in those 16 years, Oswald was used mightily. One story is told uh, of him by his biographer. It was after the, the World War I had broken out. Oswald had uh, volunteered with the YMCA and they sent him to uh, Egypt and there Oswald would minister to the soldiers and, and be, before going to Egypt there had been a Bible college that he had started in England and one of the students that had been in his Bible college had come to Egypt to minister there. So his biography tells a story where Oswald and his wife have ministered there in Egypt, this young lady they know and care for, she's come ministered to them but she's come deathly ill and she's now in the hospital and she's dying and it doesn't look good. So Oswald and his wife go and they visit her. They prayed for her much. They care about her deeply. And they go and visit her in the hospital. And there, I'm sure, prayed for her, prayed over her in the hospital bed. They leave the hospital and come home. And, and there, Biddy, his wife, is working in the kitchen. And, and almost to nobody, she just remarks, she says, I wonder what God will do. To that, Oswald, sitting in the corner, shining his shoes, responded, 
I don't care what God does. I care who God is. The biographer notes, at first glance, that seems a cold and callous remark to say, I don't care what God does. But he said, no, it wasn't cold and callous because Oswald cared very deeply for this young lady. But what Oswald understands is sometimes what God does can be confusing, but who God is is never confusing. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference. See, when we look at scriptures like Luke 19.10, where the scripture says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We look at that and say, hey, look, God does saving and God does pursuing. I'm grateful that's what he does. But the scripture is telling us more than that's just what he does. It's telling us that's who he is. He's a seeking God. And he's a saving God. You'll see people, slogans on businesses or maybe athletes saying, man, this is what we do. And what they're trying to emphasize is this is what we're all about. If, if for instance, if, if uh, my father-in-law, Wally Swanson, he's got a, Swanson, a painting company, Swanson Painting. If, let's just say he came up with a new motto and, and their new motto was Swanson Painting. Painting is what we do. And we'd say, hey, that's, that's good. In fact, there was a time when I was trying to encourage him to adjust the motto of his company. I said, hey, Dad, here's what I think you ought to do. Swanson Painting, cutting corners since 1984. In like the corners of a room, you know, you cut them. And he said, I don't think that's going to work very well. I think we might lose business. I said, well, at least they'll know we had a sense of humor. <laughs> but let's just say he, he, he names the motto of his company, uh, Swanson Painting, painting is what we do. You'd say, that's good. So you'd ask him, hey, are you a painter? Hey, hey, I'm, I'm a painter. Painting's what we do. And I'd say, uh, so what do you do when you're not painting? Well, I work in my shop and I go out to eat with my wife and I take care of my kids and I take care of my grandkids. Okay, so what you're admitting then is you're not always painting. Well, no, painting's what I do for work, but there's other things that I do. Exactly. See, when you focus on what someone does, that means there's a possibility that they might not do it all the time. Pursuing and saving people is what God does, but it's far more than just what he does. It's who he is, which means pursuing and saving people he doesn't take a break from. He doesn't take vacation from. There's never a time when he's not pursuing and saving mankind. There's a big difference between what he does and who he is. This evening, I want to take us to a passage where God began to deal with me and prove to me, show to me, reveal his very nature, not just what he does, but who he is, and that is God is a pursuing God. Someone challenged with me back in June. They said, do you know that God is always pursuing mankind? Not, not that mankind is always pursuing God, but that God is pursuing mankind. In fact, A.W. Tozer, uh, in his book, The Pursuit of God, said something very similar. He said, the impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. And all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand, for, for thy right hand upholdeth me. And what A.W. Tozer got a hold of, what this person challenging me, and what I began to realize is that pursuing mankind, pursuing me as a saved person, pursuing the lost people, that is not just what God does, it's who he is. Pursuit is his nature. And so this evening, I want to preach a message entitled, A Pursuing God. We're in Acts chapter 9 here because I want us to notice the surprising conversion of Saul and what it teaches us about our pursuing God. Look with me in verse 1, the surprising conversion of Saul. And Saul, the scripture says, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly... There shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise. And go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. 
And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You're familiar with this text, aren't you? The conversion of Saul who turned to be Paul, and yet what I would call this is the surprising conversion of Saul. You say, why would you call it surprising? Because if I was God, I wouldn't have saved Saul but I'm very grateful that I'm not God and I'm grateful he's different than the way we think he is because God looked down here at a miserable wretch and decided to pour his amazing grace on him because he is a pursuing God. Look at Saul here. The scripture says he's breathing threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He has official sanction from the religious leaders at Jerusalem. They've given him all the legal ability to go down to Damascus and he can do whatever he wants. If this was America... Uh, this is the government, the, the Supreme Court giving him the ability. The police are ushering him in. They're allowing him to do everything. For the believers in Damascus, uh, there, there is no way that they can appeal to a higher court. Uh, they are at the will and the wish of Saul, and he has every uh, ability, authority to go down, and his purpose is to destroy the name of Jesus and its followers. See, to Paul, or Saul, I should say in this passage, to Saul, Jesus is a hip hypocrite. And the followers of Jesus are, are people who are just dreaming about a man who really uh, is, is only a man. Uh, to Saul, Jesus is the ruiner, if I can put it that way. Uh, he, he is ruinous to, the, to his, his lifestyle, to his Jewish faith. To Saul, he hates the name Jesus because this corrupted Jew is messing up his entire religious paradigm. And so in his mind, he's going to destroy everything that has to do with Jesus. And so he's on his way to Damascus. If you were Jesus, what would you do with Saul? He's a man who wants to destroy your followers. Jesus chooses to pursue him. Look here in verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he, being Saul, fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, You miserable wretch. No. The voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Listen to the tone of comfort there. He's not groveling over him, showing him, hey, you see who's boss here? Eat dirt, buster. No, he's not doing that. He's saying, why are, you, why are you trying to kill me? Why are you trying to destroy me? Why are you against me? He's speaking to him by name. Saul there on flat on his back. He's not sure what to think. And he calls out these, this statement, who art thou, Lord? And notice this phrase in verse 5, written in red, if you've read letter edition. He says, I am Jesus. Think about what that would have done to the heart of Saul. That is the name he cannot stand. That's the name when someone speaks it, it begins to boil inside of his chest. That's the name that he's devoted his life to destroying. And that's the person that's now speaking to him out of the cloud of light saying, I am Jesus. And this is the next phrase. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Do you realize what that passage is telling us? It's telling us that an unlikely candidate for the pursuit of God is being pursued by God. God tells him, I have been allowing pricks into your life because I'm drawing you. I'm trying to deal with you, show you the way of salvation. Do you know what the pricks are? I'm sure all of us do. Uh, uh, most of you are Bible educated here. The, the pricks would have been the picture of a long ox goad that a farmer would have used to get the cattle's attention. So a long stick pointed in and it would have been jammed into the bovine's flanks to try to get him to go which direction he wanted to. Is there anybody here who's ever worked with cows? Sam, okay a, couple, okay, a couple of you, all right. Sam, how smart are cows? Not smart. They're incredibly dumb animals, are they not? I think sheep are probably the dumbest animals around. Uh, it encourages me when the scripture says that we are like sheep. Doesn't it encourage you? We should probably apologize to the sheep, shouldn't we? 
But cows are incredibly stubborn animals. They're not very smart. They're very much habitual animals. My grandfather and my father were both dairy farmers for a good portion of their life. In fact, my grandfather's been a dairy farmer all his life. And uh, he has told me many stories about cows. In fact, he, when he was a farmer, he would carry a nail in his pocket that he would use to try to get a cow's attention. He said he would actually, if a cow was not moving, he'd take that nail and jam it in the back flank of the cow just to get the cow's attention. And all the ladies say, oh, that's so cruel. But the cow would usually go, oh. Did you want me? I mean, that's, they're just, they're not very smart animals. In fact, my grandfather told me at one point he broke, there was, he was in a, a barn hallway and this cow had gotten out of its stall and was running down the, uh, the barn hallway towards him and my grandfather was in a bad position. He had a two by four and he literally broke a two by four across the cow's face and it was just kind of like, sorry, <laughs> you know, like, I'll just go the other way. And they're just not very smart animals. So the farmer would have to use a very pointed prick that he would inflict pressure and pain into the cow to get their attention. And if the cow in stubbornness would resist against it, he'd drive the prick deeper ultimately so that the farmer would succeed in directing the animal where he wanted him to go. This is the image that God is giving us. And this is what he's telling Paul and, and Saul, excuse me. And Saul gets the imagery. And this is what God is saying. Saul, have you felt those pricks? Have you felt what I've been doing? I've been pursuing you. Now you say, what are the pricks of Jesus? Well, the scripture doesn't say explicitly, but I can only imagine Acts 2, Acts 5, and Acts 7 were probably all involved. You think of Acts 2, when Peter and those stood up and began to preach, and the scripture says that those that heard him were pricked in their hearts. Acts chapter 5, they were cut to the heart. Acts chapter 7, Saul's there. Stephen stands before them filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to preach boldly from the Old Testament scriptures, uh, de definitely revealing to them how they have crucified the risen Lord, or the, excuse me, crucified the Lord who is now risen. And there, the scripture says they are cut to the heart. They are gnashed with him. They go grab him. They throw him out of the edge of the city. And there Saul's saying, come on, guys, do your work. Give me your jackets. I'm all about it. Hey, you want, you want to be a part of this? Give me your coat. I'll hold it for you. And there he's waiting, watching, hoping that they destroy this man. And there Stephen dies a death that is so unusual to the Roman Empire. They've only seen maybe one other one like this. Where Stephen there on his knees looking up into heaven with a smile on his face cries out, I see Jesus. That's contradictory to Saul's theology. I see Jesus and he's standing at the right hand of God. He claimed his deity and his, uh, uh, the fact that he's resurrected. And then he cries out, Lord, do not lay this on their charge. They'd just heard that some days before when Jesus had cried it from the cross. I wonder what that did to Saul's heart as they began to pummel him with stones and there he died a martyr's death. Very unusual, a very unusual man. I wonder what it did to Saul's heart. And now he's laying on the ground and the very Jesus that he's trying to, to, to destroy is now pursuing him. And Saul there, as he gets up off the ground, we don't, the scripture doesn't tell us where in Acts chapter 9 Saul is converted. But we know by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 9, Saul is a converted man. And so, and I believe likely that as Saul is on his way down to Damascus, at this point he's blind. He gets up off the ground. He's blind. He's heard from Jesus. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's now, his whole uh, paradigm is shifted. He's, he knows that the Jesus is alive and he's on his way down to Damascus. And there he is three days without food and water, considering all. And God sends Ananias. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But here's what I want us to notice, church family. In that passage, a very unlikely man that no one would have thought could have ever been saved was not beyond the pursuit of Jesus. Now you say, okay, Brother Reed, that's, that's one passage. You can't really prove a point off of one passage. Do you know all your gospel verses prove this point, that Jesus is pursuing God? You know what John 3.16 is? For God... So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know what the scripture is saying? It started with Jesus. The gospel started with Jesus pursuing mankind. Luke 19.10, I quoted a minute ago. Uh, For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost, Romans 5, 8. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what the scripture is telling us? God is a pursuing God. 
You know what First John, to believers, you know what First John tells us? We love him. Why? Because he initiated first. Pursuing people is not just what he does, it's who he is. Think about the 12 disciples. All 12 disciples, uh, they ran to Jesus and said, hey, Rabbi, we heard you're looking for volunteers. Can we be a part of your team? No, they didn't. No, Jesus was looking for them. He says, hey, you and you and, and that guy over there, come on over here. I want you to be a part of my team. He pursued them. And, and you, and bring him. I already saw you sitting on the foot of the tree. What, you saw me? Yes, come on in, join my team. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he proves he is a pursuing God, constantly pursuing mankind. Luke chapter 15, three parables that he gives us. Remember the parables in Luke 15? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coins, and the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Do you know what all three parables are teaching us? He's a pursuing God. What's the parable of the lost sheep? Uh, you got a shepherd, 100 sheep. He loses 99 sheep. And so what does he do? He just says, well, that's the cost of doing business. No, he doesn't cut his losses. No, he sets aside the 99 and said, the one is valuable to me and I will pursue the one until I found the one because he's a pursuing God. The woman who has 10 coins, she doesn't set the nine aside and say, well, this is just inflation. No, she pursues the one because it's valuable to her and it's proving the fact that he is a pursuing God. The prodigal son, what is that, that, that uh, parable telling us? It's giving us the imagery that the father there sitting on the front doorstep is waiting for the boy to crest the hill and he takes off running because he's a pursuing God. What about Jonah? You know what I would have done with Jonah? You missed it, Buster. Prophets are a dime a dozen. I'll just use another one. But not God. He says, Jonah, I'm going to pursue you to Tarshish. I'm going to pursue you onto that boat. And Jonah, you try to jump overboard, I'm going to pursue you with a whale. I'm going to swallow you until you come to your senses. And Jonah may have said, Lord, it feels like you're trying to kill me. Well, sometimes that's what pursuit takes. You see, church family, there have been too many people who have left this, left this assembly and left others, left this Bible college, left other Bible colleges because they felt like God was against them when actually God was pursuing them. Do not pray for an easy time for your wayward children because sometimes your wayward children need to be flat on their back with the light shining over them. Sometimes your wayward children need to be swallowed by a whale feeling like they're about to drown. It's not God trying to destroy them, it's him pursuing. Jonah would be used mightily, one of the greatest revivals, if not the greatest revival recorded in the scriptures. That was because Jonah was pursued by God. Now maybe you, like I, in trying to wrestle through this concept, I mean, when, when I was first challenged of the fact that God's always an initiator, I thought, but, 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 but we need, I know the scripture says that I'm supposed to seek. I mean, I know the scripture says that I'm, I seek, I ask, I knock, I draw nigh. And he, that certainly makes it sound like it's my responsibility to pursue him. And then once I convince him that I really want him, then he'll turn around and pursue me. But notice who gives the invitation. Matthew chapter 7 says, challenges, commands us to ask, seek, and I. He says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And you look at that passage and say, look, it's my responsibility to ask, seek, and knock. But this is what God is saying. No, I want, I'm telling you, ask me. Imagine with me, if, um, just to try to make this point clear. Imagine with me, uh, I came in, and I know Pastor Van Gelderen is not here tonight, but let's just imagine that he was sitting right here, and let's just say that I came in, and, and I get to the, the podium, I'm about to preach, and I say, hey, thanks, Wayne, for letting me preach here. I, I really appreciate that. Boy, don't you guys appreciate Wayne? Wayne, he's a, he's a great guy. And if I went through the message referring to him as Wayne, what would you all think? This guy's off his rocker, right? He, this, this, this young kid has no right being disrespectful to him like that. And the truth is, I would never feel the freedom and the liberty. It would be very, I feel it would be disrespectful for me to refer to him in, in such a way. In fact, uh, back in 2017, we were in Africa. Uh, Joe Mueller, uh, Zach, my brother, Caleb Forrester, and I, we were all there together in Ghana, and Pastor was with us. And we're standing out this big, outside of this big bazaar, this uh, flea market kind of a thing. And this native comes up, and he's trying to sell something to Pastor. And I'm kind of standing there feeling like a body, bodyguard, 
little bit, and, and the guy, he's bugging him. He's bugging Pastor. You know Pastor, he's just a nice guy. And, and he, hey, hey, man, hey, man I want, what's your name? And Pastor turns around and says, my name's Wayne. And the man goes, Wayne, Wayne, I want to sell something to you. I'm thinking, I can't even call him Wayne. You can't call him Wayne. Like, that's not even fair. But anyways, so imagine with me, uh, if I started referring to him that way, uh, I, I would, that would be incredibly disrespectful because I, in my natural sense, would not think to. That's, that's Pastor McGeldrum. However, if Pastor came to me and said, Caleb, you know, you're an adult now. You've been in the ministry now. You can call me Wayne. I'd say, okay, Pastor. <laughs> and if he said, no, no, seriously, Caleb, you, you can call me Wayne. <laughs> Maybe via text, but that's about it. <laughs> but if he pressed me, and pressed me, and pressed me. Maybe in 10 years, I would finally feel the freedom to do that. But understand this, only because he invited me to. Do you see what Matthew 7, and Jeremiah, and James chapter 4 tells us? God is coming to us and saying, ask me. Draw nigh. He's not saying, you know, if, if you really get your act together and maybe start pursuing me, well, then maybe we can do some business. That's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying is I am giving you an invitation. If you would draw nigh, you will meet me. See, no mortal man would ever think of that. No mortal man would ever think of the creator of the universe that, they, that we have the privilege of being able to go to him and ask him of anything we need, treating him like a friend. No, no, we, in our, in our thinking, it's fall on your face reverence, which it is, but the glory of Jesus is that John 15, he says, we are friends. And so Jesus has come to us and saying, you can ask me of anything you would ask. And so he's inviting us. I'm telling you, my child, he says, if you would draw you will find me. I'll draw nigh to you. I'll give. He's actually pursuing us and inviting us. Do you know, church family, even after failure, he's still a pursuing God. Think about Peter. If I was Jesus, you know what I would do with Peter? Buster, you missed your opportunity. You had the book and the test, and you failed the open book test. Jesus could not have been any more clear. Look, if he was an instructor at BCM, he would have been pulling his hair out, saying, guys, I gave you everything you needed, and you still didn't come through. Jesus tells him, I'm going to be crucified. I'm not staying here. I'm going to rise again someday. I'm going to send you the comforter. And yet when the day comes where Jesus is betrayed and crucified, the disciples are going, oh, we didn't see this coming. And there's Peter. I go a-fishing. I'm done. And he's out there fishing. Back at his old jobs. So what does Jesus do? Does he leave Peter in the dust? No, it's because, because I believe if Jesus had done that with Peter, we would not have had the book of Acts. So Jesus pursues him. I know where Peter's going to be about this time, and I'm going to be on that bank waiting for him. Hey, Peter, come and dine. Peter jumps out of that boat swims to the shore, wades to the shore, and there Jesus recommissions him, reaffirms his love for him, and sets Peter back on the course of being able to change world history. What does he do with Thomas? You know what I would do with Thomas? Thomas, man, you missed out, buddy. You should have been in the air in the upper room. If you hadn't been running late, you know, you would have made it. But no, Jesus says, I know where Thomas is at, and I know he's discouraged, so I'm going to show up again because I want even Thomas to know that I'm real. And I don't believe he was snarky when he comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, I want you to feel my hands and put your fingers in my side because I believe what he was doing is, Thomas, I want you to be convinced he was pursuing him. Boy, church family, if we would begin to understand that God is a pursuing God, it would change the way we pray, wouldn't it? I was preaching at a church. Actually, it was, it was Billy Ingram's church. I was preaching this message. A lady on this side afterwards, and I hadn't even thought of this application, but she came to me afterwards and she said, this totally changes how I'm going to pray for my daughter. I said, well, what do you mean by that? She said, if this is true, then God is pursuing my daughter. She said, she's away from the Lord, and I have been praying for her for so many years, and I've given up praying because I just thought things were over, things weren't happening. And she said, but if God is always pursuing her, then this is what she said, that I'm joining him in what he's already doing. My prayers are actually joining with his already pursuing work and saying, yeah, that's right, Lord. That's good. You're pursuing him. I'm all about that. Can we keep pursuing him? But instead, we often go to the Lord in our prayer and we say, hey, Lord, have you heard about this guy? Lord, hey, I like him. 
Could you start working on him? As if we have to drum up business for God. Like he wasn't aware of his child. Like, oh, I, I missed him. I forgot about him. So we're saying, Lord, could, could you please? And the more I plead and the more I ask, the more I convince him that, okay, maybe I'll, I'll stop working on him for a little while and turn my efforts over to him. That's not how God is. He is constantly, always pursuing because it's not just what he does. He doesn't take a vacation. It's who he is. Pursuit is his very nature. Boy, it would change the way we pray, wouldn't it? It would also change the way we confess. I'm going to ask Isaac, can you come to the platform? I didn't warn you. I should have probably, but come on up here, Isaac. Every single one of us have experienced being away from God. I'm going to have you come over here, Isaac. Have you stand right here in the center. Isaac is going to represent believers, and I'm going to represent God. We've all experienced failing in a prompting. God instructed us, I want you to talk to that person. I want you to put that away, turn that off, and go whatever. We've all experienced the decision where we knew, we knowably disobeyed the Spirit of God, and immediately in our own soul, we've sensed that distance from the Lord. And so in those moments of decision, we make a decision of disobedience, and we take a step away from the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm going to, oh, that's, okay, you know what, let's back Make this, we're going to run into that chair, okay? That's going to hamper the illustration. Here we go. Okay, so take a step, take a step of disobedience. He takes a step away. Don't take big steps. <laughs> so, just, all right. And we feel that distance, don't we? God has not, not stopped loving us, but the relationship has been hindered. We make that decision of disobedience to the Holy Spirit, and maybe we make another one later on the day, and, and we just, we're feeling out of sorts. We're feeling worried and fearful. If you're familiar with the faster scale uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Conquer series, we find ourselves falling down where we get anxious and angry and frustrated. And let's just say, you know, he made the decision of disobedience on Friday night and wakes up Saturday morning just discouraged, and he does not spend any time with the Lord, and he goes and just wastes his morning vegging out on YouTube, maybe, and takes another step away from the Lord. And at the end of Saturday afternoon, he feels like he's wasted so much time and he just he feels so ugly and awful and yet not turning back to the Lord, he, he goes and tries to fill his flesh with more things and maybe he goes out and tries to do a couple of projects and he knows he needs to do but he's not returning to the Lord and so by the end of the day, he's taking another step away from the Lord and let's just say Saturday night, uh, he falls back in the same trap that he's fallen into many times, relapses, let's just say it's pornography, it could be anything, but he takes another step away from the Lord and he wakes up Sunday morning feeling so far from God. And, and you'll hear preachers say, well-meaning, they'll say, if you feel far from God, who moved? Now that is true in the sense of, if you made a decision of disobedience, it's you that walked away from God. That is true. But at least for me as a young man, whenever I would hear that statement, this was the picture that I got. I got inside my head that God's here and I'm so far from him. And in order for me to get back to Jesus, I've got to try to um, get those things right and, and read my Bible, get back consistent again and, and try to get myself back over to where God is. But I don't believe that's an accurate picture because he's a pursuing God. Isaac, if you can come back over here. I believe the picture is actually more like this. We make our first decision of disobedience. We resist the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And a pursuing God takes a step closer. He has not entered into sin, but he is pursuing his child. Waste time on Saturday. We feel we've taken another step away and our pursuing father is right here. If we would just yield... Sunday and Saturday night, we've relapsed. We feel like we've taken that step away. We are so far from God, and yet God is not far from you. He's one step away. You know, all the words that he gives us for seeking him are all one-action words. Repent, call, come, ask, seek, knock. He doesn't say, okay, here's a list of things you got to do. He's just calling us to humble ourselves. It's the idea of repentance, that idea of just, oh, there he was all the time. Now, are there repercussions from the decisions of disobedience I've made? Oh, absolutely there is. 
but a pursuing God. Once I, am, I turn and find out that a pursuing God was right there all along, ready to forgive. He takes me and the pathway of making those things right, he walks with me. See, too often we are scared to respond to Jesus because we feel, we're, we feel we're so far from God and we feel so unforgivable and so unlovable and so unpursuable, if I can put it that way. And so we feel like we have got to get back to the point where we finally feel like, well, if I was God, I'd probably forgive me. That's not what God is looking for. He says, I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. I'm not looking for you to get your act together. What I'm looking for you is to just turn and discover who I am. And I'm right here. And I will teach you the way of reconciliation. Thank you, Isaac. You can sit down. How many of you men and ladies have found yourself going 24, 48 hours in known sin that you want to confess and yet feeling like some time has to elapse between the committing of the sin and the forgiving of the sin in order to make sure it's really legit. What that proves is if you go a long time without asking for forgiveness, you don't believe he's a pursuing God. And you don't believe he's a forgiving God. This summer I did an eight-part series on who God is. And one of them is he is a forgiving God. It's his very nature to forgive. Boy, if we understood God as a pursuing God, it would change the way we pray. It would change the way we confess. And finally here this evening, it would change the way we witness, wouldn't it? Now, I understand, church family, you've been on this journey. And even some of the things that Pastor Van, Van, uh, Stephen Van mentioned this morning from the message were very clear. You're on this journey. But I just want to tell you, church family, God's been taking me on this journey, even though I've not even read the Blackaby book. But I began to discover, hey, what Blackaby found is right in the Bible. Look, look at this. Look at Ananias. I love this passage. Saul is now in Damascus. He can't see, doesn't eat, doesn't drink, and he is waiting for God. God's been pursuing him. God's at work in Saul. And so he's got Saul over here uh, and in the house down on Straight Street. And he comes to Ananias. And Ananias, he's a sensitive believer. And the Lord speaks to him in a vision. And God says, Ananias. And Ananias rightly responds, okay, yes, Lord, uh, I'm here. What do you want me to do? And the Lord begins to tell him, okay, so Ananias, I've got a guy down on, on Straight Street in Jonas's house. His name is Saul of Tarsus, and, and I've been working on him, and I want you to go down. And this is what Ananias does. Are we talking about the same Saul? Because I didn't think Saul would ever get saved. He's not a kind of guy that gets pursued by God. And, Saul, and God says, no, 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 I'm working on him, and I want you to take part in what I'm doing. So go down there, Ananias, and lay your hands on him, and I want to use you to help him understand what I am doing. When I began to realize that this is what the scripture is revealing is that God is taking his believers to join into what he is already doing when, because if God is a pursuing God, then that means he's working everywhere. If the scripture says the fields are white unto harvest, that doesn't mean it was white back in the days of the 1800s. That doesn't mean he was, it was white of har to harvest back in the days when we had the great preachers. It's saying in 2022, it's white unto harvest. And we often say, well, when I go door to door, I don't see it because when we go to door, we're trying to drum up business for God. Hey, God, uh, hey, let's work on this one. Knock, 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 knock. Hey, can I tell you about, let me get that foot in the door. Let me tell you about this and slam. Okay, you can go to hell. There have been whole ministries that have been built on that approach. And when someone slams the door in your face, if it makes you angry, what it proves is you're soul winning for your own good. Not to see what God could do. See, if we believe God is a pursuing God, I'm stepping out onto the streets and saying, Lord, where are you at work? See, too often we have lived our Christianity based out of fear. I've got to be a, I've got to be a witnessing Christian. I've got to, I'm at the gas station. There's a guy at the other side of the gas station. I've got to get, oh, I don't know if I want to. Am I alone in this? I'm on a plane. This is like where all the pastors tell stories. I'm on a plane, I'm on a plane. I hope, I hope no one sits there. I hope no one sits there. It's a full flight. Oh, no. He's sleeping. Yes. That's miserable Christianity. You know what's wonderful Christianity? Living every day seeing God at work. But you know who starts that? God does. I've been reading Walter Wilson's books and stories. I've, I've read those since I was a kid. And the conclusion I had come to as a kid is, wow, that guy's a special Christian. All that guy is is a man who believed that God was always pursuing. And he simply asked God to show him where he was at work. 
as I'm working through this, thinking about Walter Wilson's stories, looking at this passage, saying, look how God worked in Ananias. God, is this real? God began to show me. I finished that, that camp where I was preaching the, the eight-week series. My mind was just blown by thinking about this truth and saying, Lord, I don't want to live always trying to force my foot in the door and, and trying to witness so that I feel like a good Christian. Let, let me ask you this. What's easier? Is it easier to amp yourself up for one hour on Saturday morning or live 24 hours on duty? It's actually a lot easier to just go out on Saturday morning. That's not what God's called us to. He's called us to be believers who are always ready to take step and move forward where he's always working. So I'm thinking about this. I'm, I'm flying from Charlotte to Denver. Denver was where I was going to meet up with Dave Rames and Mr. Forrester, Matt Forrester, with a group of guys that were all uh, traveling out there. For, we were going to hike a mountain out there. And, and so I'm sitting in Charlotte, and I, I'm on the phone with my dad. I'm telling him about this camp I just preached at, and the Charlotte terminal is just packed. A lot of people are in there. And uh, I thought, well, I'm talking out loud. They can overhear me if they want to. And so we're talking about spiritual matters. And I'm just talking to my dad about this. It's going well, da 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 and okay. And, and I finally realized, okay, they're starting to board. Dad, I got to go. Okay, talk to you later. I pull my earbuds out. And I look down here, and there's a, a phone charger that's plugged in. Not my phone charger, but I thought maybe it's the girl next to me. I said, hey, ma'am, is this, is this your phone charger? She says, no, that's not mine. I said, okay, no problem. And then she says, are you a pastor? And I said, I knew what she was meaning. Uh, and so I said, yes, ma'am, I am. I'm you know, man in the ministry. And she said, I couldn't help but overhear what you were saying. And I was so stirred by that. She said, I've got some people in my life that have, are very needy, and I, I want to be a part of their life. And, and I'm thinking, wow, the Lord is showing me someone here who's open. And so we're, we're talking a little bit, and, and uh, she grew up uh, Catholic and went to parochial school, but then went to a Southern Baptist college for her undergrad, which is a very eclectic, you know, past. And so I look at she's now an attorney in Denver, and, and uh, a single lady just, just searching, and, and uh, they're starting to board, and my numbers get nice. Okay, ma'am, here, look, here's a, here's a tract, and, uh, you know, read that, Lord bless you, I, I got to go. And so I go and get on my plane. And so I sit down, and I say, okay, Lord, that's awesome, man, there's someone that you're working in, and so where, who's the next one, Lord, maybe... Maybe because normally if you just go out soul winning for yourself, once you get your one divine appointment, you're done for the day. Seriously. And so there's a guy sitting over here, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to talk with him a little bit. And so we strike up a little bit of a, uh, just a basic conversation, and the last person boards the plane, and it's this attorney from Denver. Do, 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 do. She goes, ah, oh, I'm seated next to you. I said, wow, that's a coincidence. <laughs> no, I didn't. I said, that's, that's divine. She goes, oh, this is of God. So she sits down, and we talk a little bit, boy, that's something else. And in my natural fear, because I'm not used to thinking this way, I just thought, wow, that's really something. I put my pillow around my neck, put my earbuds in, because it's a late night flight, kick back, and the Holy Spirit is saying, could you have asked for it to be more clear? I said, boy, you're right, Lord. But Lord, she's, she's already closed her eyes, and it's a red-eye flight, and, and the Lord says, you want me to show you where I'm pursuing, so just obey. Take my pillow on. Ma'am, I'm sorry, I can't let you go to sleep. i got to ask you another question. She said, oh, good. I had a couple questions for you, too, I wanted to ask. <laughs> we talked for almost the remainder of the flight, two and a half hours. We talked there. I don't know how much the people around me heard because I wasn't hushing my voice necessarily. Come to find out, I believe she was actually saved uh, as a 12-year-old, but just had not grown, and she's just hurting. And so I began to walk with her, some of the hurting, healing hurts ministry stuff that Dr. Jim is, the principles there from the Bible, just began. So for two and a half hours, I'm just going, walking through, through. okay, well, here's how you interact here, and, and this is what the scripture says about that hurt and why you're feeling that way. And, and it was an incredible opportunity. I walked out of there going, man, he is a pursuing God. It's not just Walter Wilson. <laughs> I fly back from Denver, drive from uh, Charlotte down to uh, Billy Ingram's church, and we're just, we were going to preach Sunday and Wednesday, but that was it. So I've got the other days open, so we're parked out there, and, and I'm just, man, this is great. God's a pursuing God. Where is he at work? Car pulls into the parking lot, and uh, they've got a flat tire. So I thought, well, hey, look, there's, they got a flat tire. I know how to change flat tires. I'm going to go help them and just see maybe God's at work. So I run up there to the guy, and, and uh, he, that flat tire is, you know, it's blown and all, and he's just pulled his spare out. His spare has wires poking out through the rubber, and he's like, if I can just get two miles down the road, bro, you're not getting a mile down. You're not going to get out of the driveway with this thing. And he she said, oh, yeah, you're right. Puts it back in the trunk. I'm like, Why did you? You're not going to use it later. But anyways, so and I explained. I said, hey, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm parked over there. I said, let me, let me help you with this. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my wife's got to get to the uh, get to work. And I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, hold on. So I run up to the trailer. I said, Emma, you ready for some ministry? She said, sure, what's up? I said, take this guy's wife to work. So she jumps in the truck, drives his wife to work uh, while we start pulling the tire off. We get the tire off. By, I mean, Emma's just pulling out of the driveway when we get the tire off. So it's kind of like, oh, um, well, 
I guess we'll just stand here. And he goes like this. I just can't believe this. I said, what? He goes, I can't believe this. I said, what? He goes, you're a preacher? I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. He says, he says man, he's, he's from Canada. He said, uh, I'm, I'm a self-made man. I've, I've figured out all my problems. I always have, Joel has a problem, I fix it. Just no problems until this year. He says, this year, all my problems. I can't deal with any of them. His, his work visa had been canceled by the, by the government, and they wouldn't let him uh, reapply for one. He's being deported. He was going to be deported like a month later to Canada. And he's doing everything he can. He said, this year, I have never struggled with depression like I have been. He said, I cannot believe it. Joel is always an upbeat guy, and now I'm struggling so much. And my wife told me this morning, Joel, you need to talk to a preacher. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't need to talk to a preacher. She says, Joel, I'm going to call some pastors. I'm going to call some churches and find someone to talk to you. He says, no, 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 I don't need that. They climb into the car. She keeps pestering him about it. Joel, you need to talk to a preacher. You need to get these things off your soul. Joel, I'm not used to seeing you like this. I'm going to be okay. Boom. I'm not, I am not exaggerating. Like when he's telling me the story, I'm thinking, you could not have, I mean, no preacher could have made this better. Not even David Gibbs. <laughs> She says, Joel, pull over. He pulls over, first parking lot, Canaan Baptist Church. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. God's a pursuing God. By the end of the afternoon, we go to get him a new tire. I said, Joel, why do you think God blew your tire? I have no idea. If you know, I'd love to know. I said, Joel, I think I know. Took him back to the church, sat down in the church lobby, and began to work through the how tract with him. Tears begin to roll down his face as he begins to realize what's up. And he bows and he cries out one of the sweetest prayers I've ever heard. And he says, God, I'm sorry it took me so long. When he raised his head, I said, Joel, now we're brothers. Now, isn't it amazing? That was all because God was working on a man a year before I'd even met him. And you know what I did as soon as we finished that conversation? Okay, now I've got to work on him. I've got to make sure he gets discipled. And I've got I to contact this person, this person, this person. And the Holy Spirit began to say, Caleb, you can trust him with me. Listen, parents, we have a role and a responsibility to raise our children. But do not forget, he is a pursuing God. BCM faculty... We have a role and responsibility, but do not forget, these students are being pursued by God. Falls Baptist Church staff, do not forget that we have a pursuing God, and he knows how to pursue his people. Sometimes we get so bent out of shape that that person isn't where we think they ought to be. And we take ownership that isn't ours. Do not misunderstand me. God had a role for Ananias, but the joy of the Christian experience is not trying to drum up business for God, but joining him where he's already at work. I told that story at the next church they preached at in Atlanta, south of Atlanta, Bible Baptist Church, if some of you are familiar with that church. I tell this story. I just, it was fresh in my heart. I tell this story. There's a lady listening to me. She comes up to me on the Wednesday night service and she says, Brother Reed, you're stepping on my toes. So what do you mean? And I won't name the school that she grew up in, but the school that she went to, their mentality on soul winning is you badger the door down until they listen to you because you cram it down your throat. She said, I've always gone soul winning that way. She said, on Sunday night when you preach, she said, if that is true, I want to see it played out in my life. She volunteers at a birthing center. The next day on Monday morning, she goes to the birthing center. And she says, Lord, I'm not going to badger anyone. You just show me where someone, there's someone you're already working on. She, she's telling me the story. She slaps me on the arm, says, first girl that walks in, comes into my office, wide open, a letter to Christ. What I'm trying to tell us, church family, is in 2022, God is not done and his fields of harvest have not turned brown. They're still white, or whatever color it is when they go past. <laughs> I'm not a farmer. I don't know. He's still at work. Let's join him. That's the theme, isn't it? 
Look, there's so, we get so used to themes, don't we? Hey, that's the theme for the new school year. That's good. Pastor's going to preach a theme, a, a series of messages on that theme. And the truth is, the reality is, we still get stuck into our, 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 our ruts of trying to think, okay, what do I got to do to get this person to listen to me, get this person to listen to me, get this person to listen to me, instead of sitting back and being quiet for a moment and saying, God, you show me where you're at work. I'm just saying, church family, Christianity too often is all about me. In 2022, or excuse me, in 2020, when everything got shut down, I was so depressed because I wasn't doing, doing, doing like we always do, do, do. And in 2020, we weren't allowed to do any longer. And I felt like my worth as a believer had depreciated and depleted because I wasn't doing. Instead of stepping back and saying, it's all about you, God, where are you at work in 2020? I heard it said all the time, but my mentality is, okay, I've got to go out there and find them all. Instead of simply saying, God, you're already at work because you're a pursuing God. Show me where you're at work. This last Saturday, uh, excuse me, a week ago Saturday, and I'll be done with this, but a week ago Saturday, I was flying uh, down to Florida, two flights. Again, I, I sit down in the first flight. There's a lady next to me and her husband there, and, and immediately you get that, that, that natural... Uh, did you know your flesh wants you to slip into that panicked Christian mode? And immediately I begin to feel that. I say, okay, Lord, I just, Lord, you just show me where you're at work. There was, there was just no open door. Just nothing ever happened. Okay, Lord, my heart's beginning to condemn me about the fact that I'm not a good soul owner. I should have just busted in there, but Lord, you're greater than my heart. I'm just going to, Lord, I did not sense that there was any open door. I'm just looking for you. Next flight, I sit down very back of the plane. This guy comes in, sits down next to me, and he begins to apologize that he's wearing a mask and all that. So, you know, whatever, no, that's fine. And I got to have a surgery and, and this and that and this and that. And, and we start talking and I'm thinking, well, he's very open to talk with me, but there was no like, what must I do to be saved? So I did what Walter Wilson often did. He would pose a question, a spiritual question, to see, is God at work here? So I asked him, I said, do you go to church? Well, he says, I, I, you know, I grew up Catholic, and I'm probably not as, as faithful as I should be. I said, no, that's fine. You don't have to be, you don't have to be faithful. You don't want to Catholic <laughs> church. And uh, so we started talking about eternal things. I don't remember how the conversation went, but basically he says, oh, yeah, yeah you know, Jesus Christ. And, but I have to make sure I do a little bit of, you know, do a little bit of good here and and I said, okay, sir, what the Bible teaches is it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we, I talk it all through the scripture. To it. He says, well, okay, I, I see what you're saying. He said, but I still think it's just, I think it's Jesus and I'll do a little bit of good. And that's not very different from what you said. I said, sir, it's the difference of two eternities. You die the way you are right now and you're going to hell. I got to think about this, he says. And the spirit said, that's it. Don't need to say anymore. I said, okay, sir. I said, that's all I want you to do. Here's a tract. Please read it. Please, please read the book of John. And I stepped off that flight. I didn't lead him to the Lord. That's fine. I'm not worried about my Christianity, about my stats. Because some water, some plant, and some get the increase. But what I got to step into was something God was already doing. Because he's a pursuing God. Church family... I don't want to stop living my life this way. But God doesn't want us to either. You know, when we go out to the village, what God wants you to do in the village is, Lord, you just show me where you're at work. When I go to the gas station, Lord, you just show me. God will, because he's pursuing them and he's pursuing you. It's not just what he does, it's who he is.